the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Our subject, well, Christmas. We'll take a look at the second chapter of Luke, as well as Colossians, that tells us who this babe in the manger, the incarnate Christ, is. We'll also talk with um, Emily Gao. She's the director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about what's at stake in the Chick-fil-A controversy. Uh, We'll explain that... um, in a broader context, that they are not alone in facing the kind of pressure that led to decisions that have become quite controversial among their supporters. All of that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, on December 16, 1773, radicals from Boston, and that's in quotes, members of a secret organization of American patriots called the Sons of Liberty boarded three East India Company ships and threw 342 chests of tea into Boston Harbor. may not seem like that big a deal now, but 342 chests of tea was virtually priceless. This iconic event in protest of uh, oppressive British taxation and tyrannical rule became known as the Boston Tea Party. Resistance to the Crown had been mounting over enforcement of the 1764 Sugar Act, 1765 Stamp Act, And 1767 Townsend Act, which led to the Boston Massacre, gave rise to the slogan, No Taxation Without Representation. In 1773, in the Tea Act and resulting Tea Party protests, they galvanized the colonial movement opposing British parliamentary acts, which violated the natural character, the charter, and constitutional rights of the colonists. Well, three years later, this rebellion had grown to such an extent that the founding fathers of the nation were willing to give up their fortunes and lives, attaching their signatures to a document that declared, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, It is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Again, today, 1776, the anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. Looking back, however, to December 15th yesterday, that's the anniversary of the uh, 1791 ratification of the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to our Constitution, and the rule of law it enshrines. The Bill of Rights was inspired by three remarkable documents, John Locke's 1689 thesis, two treatises of government regarding the protection of property in the Latin context, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, authored by George Mason in 1776 as part of the state's Constitution, and of course, our Declaration of Independence, authored by Thomas Jefferson. Read in context, the Bill of Rights is both an affirmation of innate, unalienable rights of man 
and a clear proscription, that's a P-R-O-scription, proscription, upon any central government infringement on those rights, as oft trampled and abused as the Bill of Rights is by those who've sworn an oath to support and defend our Constitution, most notably judicial supremacists or the despotic branch, as Jefferson called the judiciary. Patriots must remain vigilant in order to sustain those rights. A couple of anniversaries worth citing. Taking a look at the news from the last several days, astounded Republicans fumed late Thursday as House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jared uh, Gerald Nadler abruptly wrapped up a marathon hearing on the adoption of two articles of impeachment against President Trump by delaying planned votes on the matter until Friday morning. It's now very late at night, said Nadler at the time, uh, shortly before midnight in Washington. I want the members on both sides of the aisle to think about what was uh, what has happened over these two days and to search their consciences, collective, before we cast our final votes. Therefore, the committee will now stand in recess until tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., at which time I will move to divide the question so that each of us may have the opportunity to cast up or down votes on each of the articles of impeachment and let history be our judge. Ranking Representative Doug Collins, a Republican out of Georgia, raised an immediate objection as Nadler began leaving, complaining that he was not consulted, calling the proceedings a kangaroo court and saying it has or rather it was the most uh, Bush League stunt he had ever seen. There is no more time remaining for actual debate on the articles of impeachment under the 41 member Judiciary Committee's rules on Friday morning. Um, the panel voted to adopt each article of impeachment on a party line vote after a hearing that uh, could last between 45 minutes to two hours. Then the articles uh, headed to the Rules Committee, which controls access to the House floor and sets parameters of debate there before the full House votes on whether to impeach the president. That final vote is expected as early as this Wednesday or Thursday. House leaders reportedly expect to lose as many as a half a dozen votes from moderate uh, Democrats representing swing states or those that backed President Trump in 2016 when the full House votes on impeachment this week. Should the House impeach the president next week, or rather this week, the matter would go to the GOP-controlled Senate for a trial and virtually certain acquittal. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, in an exclusive interview on Hannity on Thursday, said he will coordinate the president's defense with White House lawyers in any impeachment trial and that there was zero chance that the president would be removed from office. Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Conservative Party decisively won in Britain's general election on Thursday, a victory that clears the path for Johnson to deliver his promise on Brexit and take the UK out of the European Union next month. As the results came in, Johnson declared that his party had been given a powerful new mandate. President Trump took to Twitter to congratulate Johnson. Congratulations to Boris Johnson on his great win, all in caps, win. Britain and the United States will now be free to strike a massive new trade deal after Brexit, the president said. This deal has the potential to be far bigger and more lucrative than any deal that could be made with the EU. Celebrate Boris! Exclamation point. Well, Johnson's Conservative Party was on track early Friday to win an overwhelming parliamentary majority in Britain's general election as Labour Party strongholds across the country swung dramatically to the Tories and immediately led... Uh, left far, um, or rather, left-wing labor leader Jeremy Corbyn to announce his intention to step down. Thursday's election marked a significant victory for the Tories and an historic drubbing for the Labor Party of a kind it hasn't seen since the 1930s. And the United States and China have completed uh, phase one of a trade deal, a source confirms. Details of the deal are still being fine-tuned, but the December 15th tariffs will not happen. Uh, phase one includes the following. 
phase two um, negotiations will happen after 2020 elections. President Trump is expected to announce more details, but a signing ceremony with President Xi is unlikely to be scheduled. And even in impeachment craze D.C., it's always a good time to borrow and spend. Donald Trump, Democrats and Republicans agree on trillion dollar deficits for as far as the eye can see. You might try to console your children and grandchildren on that one. House Democrats have passed a bill to give government more control over drug prices. It's deader than a doornail in the Senate, however. Rashida Tlaib depletes or rather deletes two tweets blaming white supremacy for the New Jersey shooting because the assailants were actually black supremacists. And U.S. envoy to Afghanistan has announced a pause in the Taliban peace talks after an attack on the air base. Senate uh, has passed a, uh, a bill to recognize the Armenian genocide, and Virginia's governor is offering veiled threat against second, uh, the state's Second Amendment sanctuary cities. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll have a conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Our subject will be Christmas. Who was this Jesus born in a manger? We'll also talk with Emily Gao. She's the director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation on what's at stake in the Chick-fil-A controversy. It's much broader than you might think. Both coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, actually, I'm not going to get into that. Um, Senate Democrats have sent um, a witness list uh, for the impeachment trial that's expected in the Senate, along with a 658-page report. Representative Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, wrote that President Trump is a threat to the Constitution and should be removed from office, according to their 658-page report on the articles of impeachment resolution against the president that was submitted early this morning. The majority wrote that President Trump abused his office by soliciting interference of Ukraine in the 2020 election and then obstructed the impeachment inquiry into the con- into the uh, his conduct. The report was released at 12:30 a.m. Eastern Time and included a dissent from the committee's minority. The call the case for impeachment not only weak but dangerously lowers the bars for future impeachments. The House Judiciary Committee's Republican minority blasted the committee's rush to impeach the president and wrote that history will not look kindly on how exculpatory evidence was ignored to meet a self-imposed December deadline. Trump and the White House repeatedly have denied he did anything wrong. Meanwhile, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on Sunday sent Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell a letter outlining the parameters for a weeks-long Senate impeachment trial, including the proposal that former National Security Advisor John Bolton, acting Chief of Staff Mike Mulvaney, be subpoenaed, along with two others, to testify. Bolton and Mulvaney were among the four witnesses, new witnesses, whose testimonies Democrats were seeking for the impeachment trial over President Trump's actions toward Ukraine. In addition to Bolton and Mulvaney, Schumer said Democrats also wanted testimony from two other White House officials, Robert Blair, a top Mulvaney aide, and Michael Duffy, a budget official who was tasked with handling the Ukraine issue. Now, it will be interesting to see if the Republicans are... Uh, fair enough to give the Democrats an opportunity to have their witnesses address. The Democrats denied that opportunity from Republicans in the House. In the letter, Schumer proposed the structure for a fair and honest trial in an attempt to launch negotiations ahead of House voting this week. The full Democrat-controlled House is widely expected to vote for an impeachment trial. Under Schumer's proposal, a trial would begin on the 7th of January. Now, keep in mind, he's the minority in the Senate, with a swearing-in of Chief Justice John Roberts to oversee the proceedings and stretching for several weeks as Democrats subpoena witnesses and testimony. Uh, Mitch McConnell 
who is the Senate president, uh, signaled his preference for a speedy trial, but also told uh, Fox News' Sean Hannity last week that there was zero chance Trump would be removed from office. Gerald Nadler uh, brushed off reports that Representative Jeff Van Drew in New Jersey uh, plans to leave the Democratic Party to become a Republican. What he's reacting to is public polling that shows he can't be renominated. Nadler said Sunday on ABC's This Week his electorate in his district is 24 percent to uh, renominate him and 60 percent to nominate somebody else. Well, Van Drew, who spent months criticizing fellow Democrats for their push to impeach President Trump, met with uh, President Trump on Friday to discuss going across party lines. He's one of only two Democrats who voted against opening an impeachment inquiry into the president and has remained a fervent voice in opposition to impeachment. The, the news, rather, of Van Drew's possible party flip drew harsh criticism from Democrats who called it a political move aimed at turning around his lagging approval numbers in New Jersey's second congressional district. And Boeing may cut back or even stop further production of its 737 MAX jets as the airline's future remains uncertain. The Wall Street Journal reported on Sunday, people familiar with the matter told the journal that Boeing management is increasingly seeing a production pause that's the best option, according to the report. But cutting production would increase Boeing's cost per plane and could even potentially bring about job cuts and furloughs that would affect the industry beyond Boeing. Well, Congress faces pretty high stakes week with impeachment, trade, funding votes ahead and, of course, the Christmas break. While the media and uh, his uh, critics, its critics, focus on the bitterly divided House impeachment hearing, President Trump last week collected the most agenda wins yet. We'll talk more about that later. And Supreme Court justices are going to take up a dispute over subpoenas for the president's uh, records with a decision expected sometime in June. Well, the U.S. economy um, has shaken free of recession fears and striking a turnaround since August and a reversal of Hallmark. Um, they've uh, decided that uh, they're going to reinstate same-sex wedding ads that had become rather controversial. And Virginia Democrats are proposing a mandatory state gun registration measure after widespread public outrage forced them to back off a more aggressive plan to confiscate so-called Assault weapons. An Arkansas police officer executed in his uh, in uh, the car was shot 10 times in the head, according to investigators. And two Chinese diplomats were expelled from the U.S. after entering a military base, according to the New York Post. On this day in history, 1944, the World War II Battle of the Bulge begins as German forces launch a surprise attack against the Allied forces through the uh, Ardennes Forests in Belgium and Luxembourg. The Allies eventually would be able to turn back the Germans. On this day in history, in 1773, as I mentioned, the Boston Tea Party takes place as American colonists board a British ship and dumped more than 300 chests of tea into Boston Harbor to protest ta- uh, tea taxes. On this day in history, 1950, President Harry S. Truman proclaims a national state of emergency in order to fight world conquest by communist imperialism. And in 1980, on this date, Harlan Sanders, founder of the Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant chain, dies in Shelbyville, Kentucky at age nine. By the way, I had lunch at KFC earlier today in memoriam. I had original recipe wings. On this day in history, 1982, Environmental Protection Agency head Ann Gorsuch becomes the first cabinet-level officer to be cited for contempt of Congress for refusing to submit documents requested by a congressional committee. On this day in history, 2000, President-elect George W. Bush selects Colin Powell to become the first African-American Secretary of State. And finally, on this day in 2013, the first ruling of its kind, U.S. District Court Judge Richard Leon declares that the National Security Agency's bulk collection of American 
Americans' telephone records likely violates the Constitution's ban on unreasonable searches. Well, gobsmacked, Republicans made known their fury and frustration late Thursday as the House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler abruptly wrapped up an all-day marathon hearing on the adoption of two articles of impeachment against the president by delaying the planned vote on the matter until the next morning. It's now very late, Mr. Nadler said at the time. Ranking uh, Representative Doug Collins raised an immediate objection. Mr. Chairman, there was no consulting with this ranking member on your schedule for tomorrow. You just blew up schedules for everyone. Collins asked incredulously, you chose not to consult the ranking member on a scheduling issue of this magnitude. This is a kangaroo court we're talking about. Not even consult, not even consult. 10 a.m. tomorrow, all followed by question marks. He later told reporters, this is why people don't like us. This word, which I won't repeat, Uh, Like this is why people are having such a terrible opinion of Congress, what Chairman Nadler just did, and his staff and the rest of the majority who sat uh, there quietly and said nothing. This is why they don't like us. Uh, They know it's all about games. It's all about the TV screens. They want primetime hit. This is Speaker Pelosi and Adam Schiff and others directing this committee. I don't have a chairman anymore. I guess I need to just go straight to Ms. Pelosi and say, what TV hit does uh, this committee need to do? This committee has lost all relevance. I'll see y'all tomorrow. Well, he did come in that next day at 10. Representative Jeff Van Drew, the conservative New Jersey Democrat who is expected to soon become a Republican, found himself in an unfamiliar and troubling position in recent weeks, watching support drop off from Democratic leaders in the state who had long tolerated his base angering votes in the name of political expediency. Well, until recently, Democratic leaders saw Van Drew as one of the few Democrats who could win in a pro-Trump district. Well, Van Drew, who served nearly two decades in the state legislature, was never popular with the party's progressives base in the state that's turned increasingly blue. He voted against same-sex marriage, increasing the minimum wage and numerous gun control measures. But none of that stopped the Democratic establishment from coalescing behind him as soon as the 2nd Congressional District's longtime Republican incumbent announced in 2017 that he would seek re-election. The cracks in that support began to appear when Van Drew's stance against impeaching the president started affecting local elections. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. A reminder, Pastor Scott Gilchrist joining us at 5. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. I want to remind you in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist of the Downtown Bible Class. We're going to talk about Christmas. Uh, primarily, we'll look at Luke, the second chapter, as well as Colossians one fifteen and following about who this Jesus is. We'll also talk with Emily Gao. She's the director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation on what's at stake in the Chick-fil-A controversy, which is much broader than we might realize. Well, Representative Gerald Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, wrote that President Trump is a threat to the Constitution and should be removed from office. Uh, and there will be a vote um, expected sometime this week to resolve that issue in the House, which will ultimately result in a trial in the uh, in the Senate. Well, a striking scene is playing out in Washington in 2019 as it comes to a close. While the Democrats move swiftly toward the president's uh, likely impeachment, the president has at the same time notched a string of policy victories, some of the help uh, with the help of the same House Democrats trying to drive him from office. Despite their partisan impeachment, Vice President Pence uh, told a crowd in an op-ed for the Detroit News 
Uh, The president has remained focused on how to keep our economy growing. He pointed to a pending trade deal that is a centerpiece of the administration's year-end agenda. In a spectacular twist of political timing, that deal could be approved in the full House alongside articles of impeachment later this week. The United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, a trade pact meant to replace NAFTA, has enjoyed bipartisan support and could make its way to the floor for adoption by Thursday or Friday of this week. And while Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has indicated He won't consider the USMCA until a Senate trial is complete. Passage in the House would give Trump a policy win in the most challenging of political environments and pad his presidential resume heading into 2020. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been uh, peppered and uh, with questions rather about the curious side by side votes, but said Democrats made the trade deal better in negotiations and played off the timing as the product of an unusual end of year deadline. No, it's not a coincidence. It's just uh, as we get to the end of the session, there have to be some decisions made, she told reporters on Tuesday of last week. USMCA is just one major area where the president has seen progress in recent weeks. With the threat of a government shutdown looming, Congress also reached a tentative agreement for a budget that includes $1.3 billion for the border wall that was one of the president's signature campaign promises in 2016, though funding continues to face court challenges. On top of that, a sweeping defense bill cleared the House with several Trump priorities attached, including a new branch of the military called the U.S. Space Force. And a policy giving federal employees 12 weeks of paid family leave. The president declared all of our priorities made it into the package. The trade war between the U.S. and China also appears to be easing, with the president announcing that China has agreed to a preliminary trade deal, though details have yet to be revealed. The president also reached a milestone last week when his 50th federal appellate court judge was confirmed. That nominee, Lawrence Van Dyke, Based a grueling confirmation process after a scathing negative review from the American Bar Association that left Republicans calling the ABA's evaluation process rather into question. Van Dyke now joins the bench for the Ninth Circuit, once notably liberal, but now gradually being reshaped as 10 of its 30 active seats are taken by Trump appointees. And while all this is happening, the House Judiciary Committee on Friday voted to adopt two articles of impeachment against the president, alleging abuse of power and obstruction of justice. House Democrat leaders have left no doubt how they feel about Trump's actions, even as the chamber boosts parts of his agenda, seen as popular in many members' districts. A massive impeachment report issued overnight by Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler stated this uh, continued solicitation of uh, foreign interference in a U.S. election as well as President Trump's other actions present a clear and present danger that the president will continue to use the power of his office for his personal political gain. A Democratic majority means impeachment is likely, though uh, the 31 Democrats from districts that support the president in 2016 are facing a difficult choice. Still, the GOP-controlled Senate is ready, uh, already looking ahead to a trial where the GOP majority and high threshold for conviction make Trump's acquittal all but certain. Also, while impeachment is moving forward here at home, millions were following the impeachment drama uh, here. But on Friday, the U.N. General Assembly was focused on its own priorities, adopting eight resolutions condemning or singling out Israel. Most of the vote counts uh, were extremely lopsided, with the United States and Israel alone voting against all 
Uh, eight joined in some cases by a small handful of other countries. The eight were among 35 resolutions uh, passed during the day, although none of the others targeted one specific country. Most dealt broadly with the decolonization issues and non-self-governing territories. The U.N. assault on Israel with a torrent of one-sided resolutions is surreal. Hillel Neuer, executive director of the Geneva-based non-governmental organization U.N. Watch, Four of the resolutions related to various ways to the U.N. Relief and Works Agency, the Agency for Palestinian Refugees, with one extending its mandate until 2023. The Trump administration last year prevented $360 million in taxpayer dollars from going to the organization, the U.N. Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, saying that the U.S. would no longer commit uh, further funding to this irredeemably flawed organ operation. Already deprived of its biggest donor, uh, they saw several others suspending funding this year in response to allegations of serious corruption that included sexual misconduct and nepotism and last month resulted in the resignation of the chief of the uh, of the group. The resolution passed by the General Assembly on Friday focused not on the alleged corruption, however, but instead painted the organization as a victim of financial pressures. One of the texts expressed a grave concern over attempts to discredit the agency despite its proven operational capacity. Well, the four resolutions passed by vote 169 to 2, 162 to 7, 163 to 6, and 167 to 6. Joining the U.S. and Israel in voting against three of them were Canada, Marshall Islands, and Micronesia, um, all three, um, Nehru twice, and Papua New Guinea, and Kiribati once each. Well, another of the eight resolutions passed on Friday was the annual Occupied Syrian Golan text, which comes around each year, notwithstanding the significant upheavals and political changes brought about by the civil war in Syria since 2011. The text um, each year is silent on the abuses and massive loss of life attributed to the Assad regime and other uh, belligerents. It does, however, demand that Israel stop its repressive measures against the population of the occupied Syrian Golan and calls on Israel to return the ter- territory to Syria. You might recall in 1981, Israel captured the Golan during a 1967 day, uh, six-day war and annexed, annexed it rather in uh, 1981. After abstaining in the Syrian Golan vote for 22 years, the U.S. last year changed its position to no. And last March, President Trump, in a proclamation, recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan. Friday's uh, votes in favor of the resolution, which was drafted and co-sponsored by the Assad regime, hmm, was 157 to 2, the United States and Israel with 20 abstentions. A newer call the resolution obscene after the Syrian regime has killed half a million of its own people. How can the U.N. call for more people to be handed over to Assad's rule? He asked. The text is morally galling and logically absurd. The other three Israel focused resolutions passed by the General Assembly on Friday were a text relating to a special committee's investigating Israeli human rights practices that passed 81 to 13 with 80 abstentions. A text relating to Israeli settlements in disputed territory, passing 157 to 7 with 15 abstentions. And a text relating to Israeli practices affecting the human rights of the Palestinian people, passed 157 to 9 with 13 abstentions. In those votes, the U.S. and Israel were joined in voting uh, no on uh, in all three by Canada, Marshall Islands, Micronesia and Nehru. Nauru, uh, in two of the three by Australia, Guatemala, and Papua New Guinea, and in one of the three by Brazil, Colombia, Honduras, Hungary, and 
Kiribati. The UN's disproportionate assault against the Jewish state undermines the institutional credibility of what it's supposed to be an impartial international body, Mr. Neuer went on to say. Well, UNRWA was stoking controversy long before the corruption charges that plagued it this year. Every refugee situation in the world is dealt with by the U.N. Refugee Agency, except for the Palestinian um, situation, an anomaly that the agency itself celebrates as unique. Also unique is the way they define a Palestinian refugee, and over the, th- the decades, the number of people uh, falling under its mandate has grown exponentially. When the agency began operations in 1950, it was responding to the needs of 750,000 Palestinian refugees. Uh, they say today... Some 5 million Palestinian refugees are eligible for their services. They live in Gaza, the West Bank, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan, where 2 million have acquired Jordanian citizenship. The 1951 UN Refugee Convention states that refugee status ceases to apply where a person has acquired a new nationality and enjoys the protection of the country of his new nationality. In the case of the Palestinians, however, UNRWA considers those in Jordan as refugees even if they have acquired Jordanian citizenship. The official Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics puts the number, the total number of Palestinian refugees at 6 million and says 64 percent of the population of the Gaza Strip today defined as refugees, despite the fact that Gaza Strip has been under exclusive Palestinian rule since 2005. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Next hour, we'll talk about what Christmas is really all about with Pastor Scott Gilchrist, and we'll look at uh, what's at stake in the Chick-fil-A controversy with Emily Gao from the Heritage Foundation. Well, weeks of congressional hearings and debate have failed to move the electorate on impeachment, according to the latest Fox News poll, and there are others out there as well. At the same time, approval of the president's job performance has climbed three points, Currently, 45 percent of voters approve of the job the president is doing, up from 42 percent in late October. Over half, 53 percent disapprove. That lands the president almost exactly where he started the year, as 43 percent approval and 54 percent disapproval in January. The poll conducted uh, Sunday through Wednesday also finds 50 percent want the president impeached and removed from office. Four percent say impeachment, but not removal, and 41 percent oppose impeaching him altogether. In late October, 49 percent favored impeachment and removal. Four percent said impeach, don't remove, and 41 percent opposed impeachment altogether. Lots of polls, lots of numbers. Not uh, much has changed over the weeks and months of the House trial. Well, former FBI Director James Comey admitted on Fox News Sunday that the recently released Justice Department Inspector General's report on the launch of the FBI's Russia investigation and their use of the surveillance process showed that he was overconfident, interesting choice of words, when he defended his former agency's use of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. This comes days after Inspector General Michael Horowitz's report and testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee detailed concerns that included 17 significant errors and omissions by the FBI's investigative team when applying for a FISA warrant to monitor former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. Horowitz referred the entire chain of command to the FBI and the Department of Justice for how to assess and address their performance failures during the probe, which was conducted while Comey was in charge. 
He's right. I was wrong, Comey said about how the FBI used the FISA process, adding I was overconfident as director in our procedures and that what happened was not acceptable. Well, Horowitz did make it clear that he believes the FBI investigation of Russian election interference and possible connections with the Trump campaign was properly initiated, but he did note that this is based on a low threshold. He also concluded that there was no testimonial or documentary evidence to show that the investigation started due to any political bias, but said the issue of bias gets murkier when it comes to the various issues with the FISA process. He said the next uh, report that will be released on this process is in a better position because they have broader investigative tools to make that determination. That process included the reliance on information gathered by former British spy Christopher Steele as part of opposition research conducted by Fusion GPS for the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton campaign. Horowitz report states that the government attorneys are were hesitant to approve the FISA warrant application until they relied on unverified information from Steele. That information also was used in subsequent renewals of the FISA warrant. Comey downplayed the role of Steele's information in obtaining the FISA warrant against Page, claiming Sunday that it was not a huge part of the presentation to the court, just part of the information included in the warrant um, uh, application. He insisted that he and Horowitz weren't saying different things about Steele's significance, although having heard Steele respond in the hearing, it sounds to me like they were saying Different things, but host Chris Wallace then read Horowitz's words, which said Steele's information played a central and essential role in establishing probable cause. Comey said he did not see the disconnect between his stance and Horowitz, even though he recognized that Steele's reporting was the one that convinced the lawyers to move forward. When Wallace accused him of minimizing the relevance of Steele's information, Comey said, uh, If I was then Um, I'm sorry that I did that. Well, another tense exchange occurred when Comey and Wallace accused each other of mischaracterizing the problems with Steele's reporting. Comey claimed that the issues were significant questions about the reliability of some of the subsource reporting. Wallace then pointed out that according to Horowitz report, Steele's Russian subsource was not the problem. Rather, the subsource told the FBI that Steele was the one misrepresenting Uh, His statements demonstrating a lack of reliability. Comey maintained that doesn't drive the conclusion that Steele's reporting was bunk. Well, in addition to the issues related to Steele, the FBI was found to have omitted exculpatory information about Page that could have impacted the judge's decision in granting the FISA warrant. Included in this was an, uh, an instance where an attorney was found to have altered an email to say that Page had not been an, a CIA attorney, uh, was found to have um, uh, attorney, or rather CIA source, when in fact he had been working with them. That information would have justified Page's contacts with Russia, and its omission ultimately led the FBI renewing the FISA warrant against Page. In an April 2018 interview with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, Comey claimed that the FISA process is incredibly rigorous and claimed that Republican criticism of the Page FISA uh, warrant was a political deal that was not based on in substance or law. Well, following the release of the report, Comey essentially claimed vindication, declaring in the wake of the report that the criticism of the Bureau's actions were all lies. When asked about vindication at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, the inspector general bluntly replied, I think the activities we found here don't vindicate anybody who touched this FISA. Well, Comey explained that his claim of vindication was not in reference to the issues identified in the Horowitz report. What I mean is that the FBI was accused of treason, of illegal spying, of tapping Trump's uh, wires illegally, of obtaining an investigation without justification, of being a criminal conspiracy to unseat, defeat, and then unseat a president. All of that was nonsense, he said.
Uh, on Sunday, Comey claimed that the FBI did not intentionally commit wrongdoing, but described the FBI's failures as real sloppiness. He said the Horowitz report did not find misconduct by any FBI people, rather just mistakes and negligence. Well, that's he was even called into question with uh, Horowitz testimony on Sunday. Comey claimed that the FBI did not do um, did not wrong the president intentionally. Mr. Wallace was quick to remind Comey that attorney Kevin uh, Kleinsmith was referred for criminal investigation for the doctoring of emails. Uh, Comey said that's uh, been uh, not been resolved. He did say it was fair to say that the FBI provided false information to the FISA court. Comey said that in general, he was unaware of the particulars of the investigation. That was clear in the interview when it uh, was uh, going on, but said that as the person at the head of the FBI at the time, it still falls on him. I was responsible for this. Well, the Supreme Court agreed on Friday to decide whether President Trump can be shielded from congressional and state subpoenas for his personal banking and accounting records and what could be a major test of separation of powers between the executive branch, Congress and the states. At issue is the extent a sitting president can be subject to congressional oversight under valid legislative purposes of his private business dealings before he took office. The high court will also look at the extent of sitting president can be subject to state and local grand jury investigations and prosecutions. We are pleased that the Supreme Court granted review of the president's three pending cases. Jay Sekulow, counsel to the president, said in a statement, these cases raise significant constitutional issues. We look forward to presenting our case, our written and oral arguments. The justices held a private conference on Friday where they considered a New York state subpoena, two other related appeals involving separate congressional subpoenas. A lower federal court had separately ruled that Trump must comply with the subpoenas, but his personal lawyers had asked the Supreme Court to intervene. Well, controversy continues to roil this week's um, uh, upcoming Democratic presidential primary debate in Los Angeles amid an ongoing labor dispute, anger over the tightening qualification standards and discontent with Democratic National Committee Chairman Tom Perez. The debate, which was originally slated to be held at the University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA, was moved to Loyola Marymount University after Ask Me Local 3299, the union representing more than 25,000 University of California service and patient technical care workers, and the state school forced UCLA to inform the Democrats and its media partners to abandon plans to host the debate at Luskin School of Public Affairs. But another labor dispute at Loyola Marymount University is now once again threatening the December 19th debate. And the top Democratic primary candidates are threatening to boycott the event if they have to cross a picket line to get to the stage. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then we'll talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Our subject, well, Christmas. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In just a few moments, I'm going to have a conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Our subject, well, Christmas. We'll also talk with Emily Gao. She's the director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about what's at stake in the Chick-fil-A controversy that's much broader than you might imagine. That's coming up later in this hour. Well, let's see. The Christmas tree is up. The lights are hanging, even though I did fall from a great height putting them up. Uh, let's see. Uh, the music is playing in the background virtually everywhere. I guess that's what Christmas is all about, the stuff we do around the occasion. There's joy to the world because we're all smiling and spending time with family. 
Or is there more to it? Well, I've invited Pastor Scott Gilchrist of the Downtown Bible Class to join me to talk a bit about uh, Christmas. We read the story in the second chapter of Luke. And then in Colossians in the first chapter, we uh, we read about who Jesus is, not just a babe in the manger. Many of us are content to celebrate him there. But as the uh, sinless Savior, well, that's another story. Uh, once again, Pastor Scott Gilchrist joins me to talk about Christmas. First of all, Merry Christmas, Pastor Gilchrist. Well, thanks, Georgine. Merry Christmas to you. It's great to hear your voice and good to be with you. Thank you. You know, we're all struggling today to try to make Christmas everything the songs say it's supposed to be. And I think most of us have to admit, if we don't fully comprehend what Christmas is all about, the incarnation of Christ, it tends to fall short. And at the end of the season, we're just as exhausted and disappointed as we were in the middle of the year. So let's begin with um, with what the Gospel of Luke, we also read about it in Matthew, but what the Gospel of Luke has to say to us about the story of the birth of Christ and why it's significant. Well, I'll tell you, it. it uh, I was thinking of it just the other day, how the season itself is is very appropriate that we celebrate for the biggest season of the year almost mm-hmm. uh it 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 is very appropriate when you stop and know what really what we're celebrating that that God saw the need in the human race and acted to meet that need and actually came into the human race. So the truth behind it is so appropriate, and yet, like you said, often the celebration just takes a life of its own, and sadly, all around us, there are people celebrating, but not really celebrating Christ. So it's a joy to refocus our attention on the real the real uh, birth of Christ and why we're celebrating. Now, we use the word incarnation to describe the coming of the Savior in very humble circumstances. Can you explain what that means and why that's significant? I mean, it's we we can relate to a baby being born, but this was unique in all of human history and really is the was. centerpiece of human history. Yeah, you know, all four Gospels talk about it, but when you ask it in that framework, I would say that uh, incarnation is really the word enfleshment. And God, the eternal creator of the universe became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how John puts it in his gospel as he begins. He said, in the beginning, from all eternity, uh, was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, pitched his tent among us. It's picturesque language, but to think And I was just speaking on it yesterday to think that God Almighty, the Holy One, would enter a defiled human race and that God uh, did it in such a way that purity entered the race. Uh, He was born through the Virgin Mary and uh, it it just an amazing story and it continually was hitting me. Nobody could make this up. God God uh, did something that leaves us in awe when we think about it. Yeah, absolutely. As I'm thinking about Christmas, I'm reminded of what um, Colossians, the first chapter, has to say about the supremacy of the Son of God that describes who He is and why um, so many of us worship Him and have uh, put our hope and trust in Him, uh, beginning with the 15th um, verse. And I'll just read it through, and then I'd love for you to comment Uh, on it. I'm reading from 15 to, uh, let's see, I think it's 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of over all creation. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant." Uh, we don't think about Jesus so much in the life work, his purpose in coming, uh, and the, the three years of public ministry uh, as much at Christmas time. But I think in order to appreciate what happened on that day, it's important to consider who Jesus is. Everything hinges on that. Uh, it's a beautiful story, the birth of the baby and Luke, and but it's preceded by this great truth that, that uh, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary so that that which is conceived in her will be called Son of the Most High God. And Colossians, of course, is much more didactic. That passage mm-hmm. you read is just such a great statement of it. He is the very image of the invisible God. We can't see God. Uh, we, and uh, throughout the centuries, there have always been people wanting to make gods that you can see and idols. Uh, But God is spirit. You can't see him, but then he made himself seeable. He made himself visible. When Jesus came into the world, it it states clearly he's the the very image of the invisible one. So we can see him, and we state it both ways because it's, it's true. No man has seen God at any time, John says, and yet the only begotten God, who's in the bosom of the Father, the Word became flesh, makes him known. So when you see Jesus, you're seeing God in the flesh, as you said, the incarnation, the enfleshment, and uh, that the reality of who he is, his identity, makes the, the story of his birth and the worshiping that goes on and the glorious angelic music and that we still love to, to sing and praise God with, why it's all so appropriate that, that we're celebrating the very fact that God became man. You know, when something big happens in my life, or maybe your life as well, you want to make a big deal out of it. You want to make sure the right people know it. You, you, know, you want to see if the press is going to cover it. Uh, we want to make um, big events widely known, and we use whatever facility is available. It's remarkable to me to consider that this most unique event in all of human history, followed by a series of other unique events that culminate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus— is done in, in virtual obscurity. Now, for those who are familiar with the scriptures, they, sh- they should have known what to look for. But the fact that he came in such a small, insignificant place is really a marvel. It is. And, and, uh, and yet it was all predicted that mm-hmm. way. You know, the Hebrew prophets said he would, he would be uh, ignored, basically. And uh, like one from whom men hide their face, he would be called the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And even the passage you just read in Colossians is 
is just right on the heels of his cross that he he died in uh, in a, a reproachful way people thought of him as a criminal and yet god in his great uh, wisdom and grace designed salvation that way that he would humble himself to the point of death even even death on a cross and be born in an obscure place there was no room for him in the inn he was harassed by the tyrant of the day herod he had to flee to egypt uh, everything about it is just uh, when when we stop and think about it it just makes us worship him and it's still that way today it's it, sadly there's a lot of people in portland that are busy celebrating the season and and uh, have no time to really think about who he is. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad we can talk about it right now, and I hope each of our listeners is is stopping and thinking, yes, I'm, we're celebrating the birth of God's Son into the, into the human race to accomplish our redemption. We're going to continue our conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist of the Downtown Bible Class in just a moment. We need to take a break, though, so we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist of the Downtown Bible Class. Before we continue our conversation, I want to remind listeners that Downtown Bible Class is uh, hosting the Christmas celebration coming up this Wednesday. Can you tell us a little bit about it, Pastor Scott? Yeah, that's one of my favorite events of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, every Every Wednesday we meet, but on the Wednesday right before Christmas, this Wednesday, the 18th, we're going to have a special Christmas presentation. And we meet at the Art Museum. We're going to have some beautiful Christmas music, and then I'll bring a Christmas message. And it's always just a festive time, and it seems like one of the most appropriate celebrations of the year. So I just love it. And I would want to invite anybody and everybody in Portland to come on down to the Art Museum. And we can gather at 12. We're going to have some beautiful music going. And then it's just a 30-minute uh, lunch program. And then uh, we will celebrate the very thing we're talking about here on the radio, the birth of Jesus Christ and what it means to us personally. Again, that's at the Portland Art Museum coming up this Wednesday. Now, the following Wednesday, will you also be meeting? <laughs> that's, you know, we always say 52 <laughs> Wednesdays a year, but this year we're going to take a break. It's uh, both Christmas and New Year's land on Wednesday. So we'll be back. I've, I can't even think of the date right now. January, the first Wednesday in January, mm-hmm. we'll be back down there. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted Christmas, to clarify. We're going to stay home and celebrate in our homes. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, we're talking about the <clears throat> Christmas story and how significant this is and how easy it is to, to miss. You know, I'm a, I'm a father follower of Jesus. I'm a believer. Um, But it's easy even for me to get caught up in so much of the activity that culturally we do around Christmas time. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's a beautiful time of festive celebration. But to really make an effort to focus on the central meaning of Christmas, because it's it's core to my my Christian uh, witness Mm -hmm. and it's core to my Christian life, we really need to be intentional in focusing on what the season is really all about. I agree. In fact, I find myself having to stop, and I like to start my day by pausing and uh, listening to the Scripture and looking at the Scripture as to what it says. Passages like you've pointed our attention to here in Luke 2 and Colossians 1, that uh, God himself, the creator of the universe, entered the creation and did so to redeem us from our sin. 
And I think it's a, a good practice, like you said, for those of us who know him, to stop and, and recalibrate our day each day, but particularly during this busy time of year, to just remember why we celebrate. And the words that are associated with this season are so often, uh, you know, we lose we lose sight of our peace and our hope and our joy just in the busyness sometimes. But when I stop and think about Christ and what he did for me and the love he has for me, why my my soul is flooded with peace and joy and hope and this year particularly i've been thinking about light uh the isaiah wrote in prediction of prophesying of jesus that the people who sat in darkness will see a great light and when jesus came matthew quotes that passage out of isaiah 9 and says it happened the people sitting in darkness in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And so I try to let the lights of this season, I love the lights as Mm -hmm. I drive through the neighborhoods at night, I try to let those be kind of a trigger mechanism in my mind to just remind myself that the light of the world has come into a dark world where the news and the bitterness and the anxieties that's all around us, it is a dark world. But praise the Lord, he brought light into that darkness. And uh, I think, you know, I've I've been thinking about it in a societal way. Jesus uh, is the light of the world, but I've been thinking about it personally, too. He loved me and delivered himself up for mm. me. And uh, that, I need to be reminded of that, and I need to rejoice in that daily. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me that... Um, Herod, who was the the leader at that time, um, had imagined him, or rather Caesar Augustus, who was the leader at that time, had imagined himself to be the most powerful man uh, on the planet as far as he understood his power and his position. Mm-hmm. And events were taking place com- that he was completely unaware of. Now, he had he was familiar enough with the scriptures to know what they said about a coming uh, Messiah, so he was watching for that, but he never imagined that his power could be challenged in such a way. The people were looking for political relief. They were looking for a leader who would relieve them from the political pressure and oppression that they were under, under the rule of Caesar Augustus. And yet Jesus came to a very modest place. He came to very modest uh, parents, one who stood in as a parent, the other uh, Mary, his, uh, his mother. Uh, and the events took place where it was shepherds who were not, uh, you know, sort of romanticized um, as they are today, uh, who were very low on the social uh, Mm -hmm. totem pole. Uh, They were there to bear witness to to these events. It really is uh, amazing to consider the least expected uh, circumstances. That's what God chose uh, in order to bring his son into the world. That's so true. We would expect a mighty conqueror, and he came and... uh, in in exactly the opposite way the first time. And of course, the Bible says he's coming back uh, in triumph, but uh, he came to, like you said, the shepherds out in the in their fields. They were they were low in the pecking order, and yet the angels announced this good news of a great joy to them. In fact, that's another phrase that's been on my mind uh, this year: uh, the good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. That's what the angels said when the when their glory shone around them. The, the shepherds were kind of blown away and were very frightened. And they said, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of a great joy 
which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And, you know, Georgine, uh, throughout the centuries, there have been people with lots of money and people with no money, people with high status and people with low status uh, who have come to know him. And But honestly, the, the scripture says that by and large, Jesus is, is scorned by those high and mighty who kind of have their want to have their cake and eat it too right here and now. And often it's the lowly ones who hear his voice and, and respond. Uh, he said there's not many mighty, not mm-hmm. many noble. And I'm glad he didn't say any because, you know, there's great leaders throughout our history and there's people in our government and business leaders today who know Jesus. But by and large, uh, God didn't do it in a way that we would expect this to be done in such a way that get everyone's attention. Rather, he uh, brought the good news to these humble shepherds and anyone else who would listen to his voice. I really um, love the lyrics to the song Silent Night because it makes reference to the dawn of redeeming grace. And when I think about uh, Christmas, I think hope was born on that night because the dawn of redeeming grace, you and I had no hope before a holy God before Jesus came and made a way for us through his sinless life and the the, uh, death on the cross uh, that he suffered for our sake. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. But at Christmas time, this is the dawn of redeeming grace. There is hope for us to be reconciled to God. And that invitation to boldly uh, come before the the throne of grace um, is the result of, of that evening and the life that followed. And sometimes I think it's important to just stop and 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 restate that what you just said what grace really means it's it's completely undeserved uh, he comes to us in our sin and we were as you said helpless to do anything about it and the bible teaches very clearly that there's no way i can clean myself up or make myself acceptable to a holy god but god took the initiative and at great cost he gave himself so that I can be saved by grace, unmerited favor, God's blessing that I could never deserve, but that we can bask in. And uh, I like to say splash around in it. I mean, he just lavished <laughs> yes. his grace on us. And uh, if ever we understand it, it seems to me it's when we stop and realize, as you said, who it is that was born uh, for us. Yes. Well, uh, Pastor Scott, I so appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. If anyone's looking for a great Bible teaching uh, during this season, you might consider Southwest Bible Church. I have family who attend there, and uh, Pastor Scott is an excellent Bible teacher, and I'm sure you will be welcomed uh, to be a part of that uh, that family. Pastor Scott, thank you so much. I have anyone. Well, thanks so much, Georgina. It's great to talk with you. Have a great Christmas. Thank you. You too. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, of course, those of us who have been following the controversy around Chick-fil-A and decisions they made recently to withdraw funding from the Salvation Army and the um, uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, well, there's uh, more to the story. And my next guest in a commentary has put into context not only what's happening with Chick-fil-A, but with other organizations around uh, the country. Emily Gao is director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. She wrote about uh, what's at stake with Chick-fil-A and certainly with others as well. Emily Gao, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Georgie. Thank you for inviting me. Well, there was a lot of um, backlash when Chick-fil-A made a decision to withdraw funding from some uh, mainstream Christian organizations and then to fund organizations that were contrary to what its stated core values have been. But in your commentary, you put it into a broader context. Can you begin by telling us a bit about uh, what's happened with Chick-fil-A and the pressure they have been under? Sure. Well, as your listeners might know, in 2012, the CEO of Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy, stated that he believes in the biblical view of marriage, that marriage is between one man and one woman. After that, there was a tremendous backlash against him and his company by LGBT activists. Um, There was a lot of harassment of the company, both on social media and some very negative press. Then there were calls for boycotts against the company. Um, And then ultimately... A very tragic incident happened when the Family Research Council came out in support of Chick-fil-A, and then a vigilante actually went to attack the employees of the Family Research Council because of their support for Chick-fil-A and ended up shooting one of the employees there. So it's just escalated and escalated, and most recently Chick-fil-A has tried to enter into new markets, including in England, and they face boycotts by LGBT activists there. And the one of the top-level um, executives there recently made a statement that you know, Chick-fil-A went to make clear what its values were, and they were only going to give to organizations that fund um, work on homelessness and poverty. And simultaneously, they made the decision not to continue funding the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Salvation Army. So a lot of people interpreted... Um, the decision not to fund Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Salvation Army as a disavowal of their beliefs in uh, marriage and Christian values. Now you also write about, um, again, putting this into a broader context, the challenge that Stephen Bridget tends, a Catholic family who um, run or ran, I'm not sure which is correct now, Country Mills Farms in Michigan, and the challenge they too faced because of their belief and embrace of traditional family values. That's right. I wanted to show people that it's not only happening on Wall Street, but also on Main Street. Small business owners are facing an incredible amount of pressure from LGBT activists to conform to progressive values on sexuality. So Stephen Bridget Tennis run Country Mill Farms, and they host weddings at their farm. And so they were asked by a lesbian couple on Facebook if they would host a same-sex wedding. And the Genesis said, you know, we believe in the biblical view of marriage, marriage between a man and a woman, and so we would refer you to another farm. As a result of that statement, again, activists called for boycotts of the farm, and the city of East Lansing actually banned them from selling their produce at the farmer's market. So they are now in their fourth year of litigation against the city council of East Lansing. They were forbidden from making their produce available by the city council. I mean, that's just extraordinary. 
It is. It's a very draconian punishment to forbid somebody from selling goods in a marketplace simply because they hold to views of marriage that most of the world have have held for most of time. You make the point that we can make too little and too much out of these incidents. How should we interpret them and why are they important for us moving forward if we believe in uh, the freedom of religion and maintaining that in this country? Well, I think it's important for people to recognize that freedom doesn't decline overnight. It declines in stages, and these stages correspond with the four types of attack that I identified in the article and earlier. Those four types of attack are social marginalization, and then economic discrimination, and then legal, including criminal penalties, and finally violence. I think it's important for people to realize that anybody's freedom of conscience on any issue can be attacked once the state is empowered to enforce an orthodoxy, whether that be a orthodoxy on sexuality or on any other matter. And it can be secular orthodoxy, too. So I think it's important for any American who cares about freedom to defend the right of all Americans to disagree on these matters. You also make an important distinction and encourage your readers to do the same between disagreement and discrimination, that these are two very different things, that firefighters and pilots and entertainers, tech CEOs have lost their jobs, lost promotions, access to markets because they refuse to go along with this new orthodoxy. Uh, and again, this the absence of a distinction in the marketplace between a disagreement and discrimination. Absolutely. There is a basic understanding among most American people that we have differences of opinion and that that should be tolerated. This country was founded on the freedom of conscience, the freedom of religion, on the ability of Americans to disagree with each other and still live civilly together. But what we see recently, particularly in the controversies over same-sex weddings and, and now on transgender ideology, is that civil rights law is being... Um, transformed and used for a very different purpose. So civil rights law was initially passed to prevent discrimination against people simply because of their identity. Um, African-Americans who were refused places to, to sleep or places to eat simply because of their race. That was invidious discrimination, and it was perpetuated by the market and by social forces. And that's why we had to pass the Civil Rights Act in 1964. But now those laws that were meant to shield people from discrimination. Now those laws are being turned into a sword to punish people who don't subscribe to the prevailing progressive orthodoxy on sexuality. And the government is is using civil rights laws now to punish people like, you know, the cake baker, Jack Phillips in Colorado, or in Oregon, the Klein family, mm-hmm. because they also believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. And so we see these types of lawsuits on a regular basis now for people who, you know, believe that we're created male and female and that male and female are created for each other. These are these are issues where we should be able to disagree and have different opinions. The government shouldn't be able to force everyone to hold one opinion. Yeah, absolutely. You write that the future of freedom depends on whether we can live with differences and respect the consciences of all in the marketplace. If not, we risk seeing things get even uglier. It's hard to imagine things getting uglier, but they certainly can. They can. I have worked on religious freedom um, in many other countries outside of the U.S., and I've seen that religious freedom can increase 
in fact, decline if the majority stays silent and allows the minority um, to be attacked and targeted um, with impunity. And so that's why we need to pay attention to the early stages of attacks on religious freedom, like the social marginalization and the economic discrimination. And we need to say to our lawmakers, you know, this is unacceptable. Everyone should be able to hold their own opinions on marriage and sexuality. We can't wait until things get to the stage where, you know, laws mm-hmm. are already being passed or people are already, you know, facing criminal penalties. One final question for Steve and Bridget Tennis, uh, the Catholic family who run County Mill, uh, uh, Country Mill Farms in Michigan. They've been in litigation for four years. Are you optimistic that ultimately they will regain their freedom to do commerce in East Lansing, despite the fact that the uh, city council there declared that their beliefs themselves constituted discrimination and banned them from selling their apples at the farmer's market? Yes, I am hopeful that the tennis family will win their case and will be able to have the same freedom that all Americans should have, which is to sell their produce at the farmer's market just like everybody else. They shouldn't be excluded simply because of their religious beliefs about marriage. I think the vast majority of Americans do understand the, the value of freedom, that you know, even if you don't agree with your neighbor on something, you want that freedom as well, because one day it could be you. You could be the one who holds the minority viewpoint. So while regular people agree that there, is, there should be this, this freedom to have different opinions, I think it's you know, a small group of radical activists and elites who aren't very tolerant of people who have, you know, beliefs that don't conform to theirs. So I'm hopeful that in the long run, um, the the tradition of freedom that we have in this country and our constitutional protections of freedom will win the day. Emily Gow, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Again, Emily Gow is director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation on what's at stake in the Chick-fil-A controversy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, tomorrow on the program, we are going to be joined here in studio by World Concern with their annual Radiothon. Now, typically we focused on sort of the cheerier side of the kind of work they do, but events on the ground have made it impossible for us to ignore the fact that there is a serious and growing um, famine in Somalia and in northeastern Kenya. It's been prolonged, it's severe, it's a drought, and it's taking lives and destroying livelihoods in the country of Somalia, now bleeding over into northeastern or northern um, Kenya. Uh, This is the third severe drought the country has faced in less than a decade, and this year had one of the driest uh, rainy seasons in 35 years. Communities where World Concern is working are directly and severely impacted by events there. Now, some communities have not seen enough rain to grow adequate food in more than five years. Now, consider the cumulative effect of that inability to uh, grow enough to feed oneself, not to, not to mention the rest of the country. Now, World Concern has been responding to this disaster for many months, but it is getting worse. Millions have left their homes in search of water and food. Families have lost entire herds of animals, their only livelihood. Child malnutrition rates have skyrocketed. More than 900,000 children under the age of five are severely malnourished, and more than 3 million children estimated to be out of school as a consequence. Well, there's fear of uh, famine uh, that it will continue 
continue to rise. Some warn this could be as bad or worse than the 2011 famine that killed some 260,000 people. And we're talking about Somalia. And while we go about our regular lives, most of us probably were unaware of the serious famine that took place in 2011. Again, killing 260,000 people. Well, 2.2 million Somalis face hunger so severe that it threatens their lives as well. And the greatest uh, impact of course, falls on children. World Concern has active projects in these effective parts of Somaliland, that's in northern uh, Somalia, and they've been responding to this crisis by providing emergency nutrition and cash assistance to families in desperate need. Now, the drought has led to a severe food shortage. Children are starving, and mothers are lined up at emergency nutrition centers to receive emergency nutrition for their children. This is ongoing and will continue for some time. Well, World Concern is providing Nutra packets. Uh, they are single daily dose packets of peanut-based paste that are packed with nutrients, vitamins, minerals, and protein. Well, malnourished children are given life-saving nutrition, but more help is needed urgently. So that's what we're going to ask you to help us uh, address during our Radiothon tomorrow right here on the Georgine Rice Show and throughout the day here on KPDQ. It is important enough that even though we're in the middle of the holiday season and we are anticipating spending wonderful time with our families, sitting around the table, enjoying the foods that for the most part, uh, are, are familiar to us and are only available during the, the holiday season. Um, but while we are preparing and anticipating all of that, I wonder if we could pause for a moment and consider what's happening in Somalia and northern Kenya right now. Um, it's going to be going on tomorrow. And on December the 25th, when you and I are celebrating Christmas with family and friends, whether or not our meal is modest we will be sheltered in homes. We'll be eating food of some kind. That is not the case in Somaliland, where the hunger crisis is growing. Our focus is going to be feeding starving children. We do know that when children are deprived of adequate nutrition in their very early formative years, it means they are stunted for the remainder of their lives. And so we're hoping that we can help to provide these Nutra packets in sufficient quantity, along with others around the country who are also focusing on this dire need, that we can help to preserve the lives of children, uh, not only so that they will simply survive, although that is reason enough, but also that they'll have the ability in future to thrive. Uh, we certainly have the opportunity to pray about what's happening there uh, as well, and that world concern would experience an abundance of uh, necessary supplies to minister to the people who are desperate there. So we're going to take a few moments to stop ringing the jingle bells and to focus on what's happening in another part of the world that so desperately needs our help. So I would encourage you, if you will, to even now begin to say, Lord, what would you have me do? I know it's not possible for all of us at every opportunity that's given to give, but this might be one for you. So that's coming up tomorrow on the program, and we look forward to sharing some of their stories uh, with you. Now, much of uh, the audio that you'll be hearing from those who work on the ground in Somalia and are seeing firsthand, attempting to minister to and provide much-needed resource to those who are suffering in, again, Somalia, the northern part of Somalia, and in northern Kenya as well. So that's what's coming up tomorrow on the program. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Jason Meyer. He's the author of Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. On Thursday, we'll um, talk with a guest, and I'm not sure which because this is a book that has a number of editors. We'll be speaking with one of them, but don't know until the day arrives. The One-Year Bible, Pray for America Bible. I should say it's the One-Year 
Pray for America Bible. It's a New Living Translation, but it is set up over the course of a, a year and in anticipating the election, which will take place in November, and then the fallout. I think that's probably the right word at this point. After the election, uh, this gives you an opportunity to pray um, throughout the year for the country, uh, and it's a, a one-year Bible for that purpose. So we're going to talk with uh, one of the editors of the one-year Pray for America Bible. Again, it's a New Living Translation. It's a brand new publication, and we want to make sure you know all of the uh, important details. On Friday, we're going to have uh, our Christmas fun program, so we're looking forward to not only taking a look at the lighter side of the news, but focusing our attention on Christmas. I'm still trying to uh, encourage Dan Rice to join me in studio for a Rice Family Christmas. I'll have to let you know if that's going to happen as soon as I (laughs) find out myself. I'm being really nice. I'm being... You know, as generous as I can to encourage him. Of course, it doesn't take much uh, to get him to come in, but we'll see if his schedule will work with mine. And we'll look forward to sharing a Rice Family Christmas with you on Friday. Speaking of which, just last night, we hosted the Rice side of the family at our home for a wonderful meal and fellowship. And just once again, so enjoy this season in which people make a greater effort to spend time together. And we did just that around the table and exchanged gifts and uh, laughter and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful time. On uh, Friday was my mother's birthday, as I've uh, mentioned, and uh, my sister and I had the opportunity to spend the whole day with her doing literally whatever she wanted to do. We went to um, uh, to lunch together. We shopped a little bit together, just hung out, laughed, reminisced, all the things that you would want to do on your birthday, especially if you're celebrating your 89th. We're planning to have a special um, celebration for her next year on her 90th birthday, so we're looking forward to that. But just thoroughly enjoyed uh, being with her and reminding her of the value that her life still has to us and to others in her 89th year. We also had a tea for uh, she and her uh, surviving friends. There are only uh, three uh, surviving friends from her generation. One passed away between the last time we had the tea and this time, so it was a tinged with a bit of sadness, but we talked about the fact that she is enjoying Christmas and will in the presence of the one who uh, was the incarnate Christ. So we could rejoice in that. We talked about uh, our life in him on this earth and the future that we all look forward to when we are in his presence. So I had a great weekend. I uh, wanted to let you know about Friday especially, and um, glad to be back in studio today. Once again, tomorrow, our World Concern Radiothon Somalian Hunger Crisis, Feeding Starving Children, is our focus. This also affects uh, northern Kenya, so hope you will join us for that. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton to, for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.